0: Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast This has been a challenging year for businesses across the globe, and they are under pressure to be as efficient as possible, which means every hire is critical. That is why Indeed is here to help you finish 2020 as strong as possible. Indeed is the number one job site in the world. And you can get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply and the offer is valid just till December 31st. The big story of the week continues to be the slow meltdown of the U.S. dollar And it's not that the financial media is ignoring uh, the story. They are covering the dollar's decline. It's just that they don't seem to uh, appreciate the significance of what's going on, nor do they realize how much further the dollar has to fall. And in fact, most of the coverage thus far has been of the positive aspects that will result from the declining dollar, which is typically the case. I mean, the dollar has gone through some significant declines in the past. I mean, the most recent big bear market in the dollar was from 2001 through 2008. I mean, the dollar did drop in 2009 after the big rally in the second half of 2008. uh, But then the dollar recovered. I mean, we had a very, very strong dollar. Really, from the 2009 low up till the peak a couple of years ago, we've really been going sideways. And now we're finally starting to break down. In fact, the dollar index closed below 90 for the first time since December of 2014, I believe. And we we ended up at 89.92 on the week. We actually had a slight positive day on Friday, so the index was a little lower on Thursday, but we're now almost 2%, I think, from taking out the low and being back down to where we were in December of 2014, which would put the dollar index at a six-year low. And as I said on my last podcast, I think the odds are pretty good that we're going to take out that low before the end of this calendar year, which you know is coming up in another couple of weeks. But I think that is going to set the stage for a major decline in the dollar's value in 2021. And it's not going to end at 2021. This is going to be another multi-year bear market in the dollar. I think we are going to take out the record low from 2008, which was about 71 on the dollar index. So we've got a long way to fall to get down there. We got about 20 points, but then it's an even bigger drop in uncharted territory once we take out 70. Of course, the U.S. stock market continues to ride the wave of money printing with all four of the major averages making new record highs this week. In fact, the record highs were all clocked in on Friday, but all of the indexes did manage to end Friday in the red. Uh, So I don't think it's a technically significant reversal, but we'll see. I mean, it would be a bit of an irony if the market peaked just as Tesla was added to the S&P 500. That might make it too simple. So my feeling is that we probably have more upside to go, nominally anyway, in the U.S. stock market. Tesla did hit a new record high itself today and closed positive on the day. It was pretty volatile in those last few minutes. Friday was the last day to buy Tesla prior to its inclusion in the S&P 500. It's now probably going to be the most expensive stock in that index. I think it's trading at about 1,400 times trailing earnings. Uh, I think, of course, uh, the street expects earnings to improve, so its future P.E. is not nearly as rich, but I still think it's trading at 300 or 400 times uh, expected earnings. Of course, expected earnings are not as uh, tangible as prior earnings, just the trailing earnings actually happened. Uh, The future earnings are just a forecast, so they could actually be wrong. But there is a lot of optimism. But of course, look, there's going to be a lot more competition in the electric car space. In fact, one of the companies that we own in our value strategy, Baidu, announced this week that it was going to be building electric cars of its own, and that helped power Baidu to a 20% gain on the week. But, you know, it's not just new entrants, but a lot of the existing established car companies are going to be able to compete with Tesla uh, in electric vehicles. And again, it's that electric Vehicles, too, that is also helping to power the demand uh, for uh, copper and nickel, which, of course, are used in those cars and in the batteries. But the big problem for including Tesla in the S&P 500 is all these funds that are indexed to the S&P 500 now have to buy Tesla. And Tesla is extremely overvalued but they have to buy it anyway so it's going to make the S&P 500 index inherently that much more overvalued and it's going to set it up for that much bigger of a decline once the air starts to come out of this bubble. Of course, you know, the air continues to come into the bubble in the form of fed money printing and in fact, if you look at the bad labor numbers that came out on Thursday, you know, everybody is watching now these weekly jobless claims and we got a big surprise. Thursday, they were expecting 806,000 new claims. And we got 885,000, that's almost 80,000 additional weekly claims for unemployment. And in fact, they revised upward the prior week. It wasn't that big a revision, but from 853,000 to 862,000. But now look at the trend from 862 to 885. But this bad news is good news because again, it puts more pressure on Congress and the Fed To try to do something about the increasing rate of unemployment and of course what they do is just create more inflation because they somehow think that there's a trade-off and if we have more inflation we'll have less unemployment in reality we're going to have more unemployment because of more inflation and even the people who are employed are going to suffer as a result of the rising cost of living but the idea that this is somehow a positive For the US economy is a bunch of nonsense. I mean, it was not a positive the last time we had a weak dollar. If you recall what was going on during that time period from 2001 to 2008, oil prices went up to $150 a barrel. That was a big problem. And a lot of Americans were paying a lot of money for oil. What are the reasons that? I suppose it was palatable as we had the housing bubble. So there are a lot of people that had a lot of home equity back then. And so they could tap into that home equity to tap uh, into a gas station to fill up their tank. But it was beginning to be a problem. And of course, it wasn't just oil prices, other industrial metal prices, uh, copper, nickel uh, were very, very strong. In fact, those metals are now strengthening again this time around. In fact, one of my biggest personal holdings in the stock market is a royalty company for nickel and copper. The stock was up 50% on the week. So the inflation signs are already there. Oil prices, by the way, speaking of oil, this is the highest close since the big collapse. We're now back over $49 a barrel for crude oil. So I think we'll be in the 50s probably by next week still a lot lower than the $150 or so price that we peaked out at in 2008. But I think we're going to get higher this time. And we're not going to have the supply coming in from the U.S. market. But a lot of it is going to be because of the weak dollar. You know, the, the reason that a lot of these pundits believe A weak dollar is good for the u.s economy is they look at the impact that the weak dollar has on multinational corporations that earn money overseas and obviously when they repatriate the money they're earning in euros for example the euro now at 122 and a half or just above there but as they sell the euros for dollars, they now get more dollars for their euros. And since they report their earnings in dollars, well, now these companies can report better earnings uh, because they've earned more dollars. But the reality is the dollars that they're earning are less valuable. They have a lower purchasing power, which means when they pay out dividends to their shareholders based on those increased earnings. It's not a real increase if your cost of living also goes up, which is going to happen. The weakness in the dollar is not going to be isolated to the foreign exchange markets. It is going to result in a higher cost of living here in the United States. Now, of course, a lot of these pundits also talk about the fact that a weak dollar gives American exporters a competitive advantage relative to... Uh, producers in other countries because our products become more competitively priced. But that's not really true because what happens is the only way that a U.S. exporter can become more competitive as a result of a lower dollar is if he also lowers the foreign currency price of his exports. So, for example... If the dollar loses 20% of its value relative to the euro, and I was selling some products in Europe at 10 euros, in theory, I could lower the price to eight euros, but still have the same number of dollars. And that supposedly is my advantage. I can cut my prices by 20%, but still earn the same amount of money. But I'm not earning the same amount of money. I'm earning the same amount of dollars. But I'm earning 20% fewer euros and what you have to understand when it comes to exports is exporting is a means to an ends countries export so that they can import because what society wants is products you want goods you're not exporting products just for the sake of having work you're exporting products because you want to import other products And the concept is comparative advantage. If a nation has a comparative advantage in producing certain goods, it will produce a surplus of those goods and then export them to other countries and then use its earnings to buy goods produced in other countries where those countries may have a comparative advantage. And therefore trade is a big win because you produce what you produce most efficiently and then you trade your earnings, you use those earnings to buy what other countries produce more efficiently. But if your currency goes down and then you earn fewer units of foreign currency, so if we earn 20% fewer euros based on putting our goods on sale and selling our goods in Europe uh, at a lower price, if we're earning fewer euros, then when we want to buy products and want to import from Europe, we can't buy as much. So basically what happens when your currency goes down and then you put your exports on sale, you can't import as much as a result of your exports. So in other words, you're actually earning less for your labor. You're not going to be able to import as much goods Uh, as what you had to export to pay for them. So it's like a decline in your standard of living. The goal is not to slash your prices and sell your products at a discount. The goal is to earn as much foreign exchange as you possibly can from your exports. That way you maximize what you can afford to import. And that is the reward for the work that goes into producing the exports. Exports are how you pay for imports. And if we don't earn as much for our exports, then we can't afford to buy as many imports. And so we have a lower standard of living. And that is what is going to happen. But also, the weakness in the dollar should be a warning sign that the game is coming to an end for the Fed and all this money printing and stimulus and quantitative easing. In fact, if you look at the numbers that we got, on Thursday. Remember, every Thursday, we get the Fed's balance sheet and we get the money supply. Well, in the most recent week, the balance sheet surged by just under $120 billion. I think this is the the biggest weekly gain in the Fed's balance sheet since May. And remember, that was really when they started the massive uh, qe infinity they were really printing a lot of money uh, earlier in the year you know the, the pandemic really you know hit hit the fan in in march and then the fed came in april may printing all sorts of money now we're back at the same pace as we were back then and that new round of buying debt monetization has now pushed the balance sheet up to 7.36 trillion. So this is a new record high in the Fed's balance sheet. And in fact, if you recall, when the balance sheet originally topped out at a little over $4 trillion, and this is before they started to uh, unwind the balance sheet with uh, quantitative tightening, if you recall, when they first announced their intention to shrink the balance sheet. And I said that, well, they'll never be able to succeed. Even if they begin the journey, they'll never complete it. And that if they start shrinking the balance sheet, they'll have to put an end to that process and then quickly reverse it. If you recall, my initial target for where I thought the balance sheet would be when we had to relaunch QE, QE4, I said the balance sheet would go to at least $10 trillion during the next round of QE. And I think that that prediction has a very good chance of coming true by the end of next year. I really think we got a good shot at a $10 trillion balance sheet before the end of 2021. Also, along with the balance sheet expansion is the explosion in the money supply. Last week, $228.1 billion increase. In M2. That's just one week. $228.1 billion was magically created out of thin air. Obviously, a lot of this in order to buy up all these government bonds. In fact, my son Spencer pointed out on Twitter that the size of the Treasury securities portion of the Fed's balance sheet has now doubled in size since the beginning of the year. So this year, the Fed has bought as many US Treasury bonds as it did in all the years prior to this year coming in. And my guess is they're gonna break that record next year. By the way, if you're not following my son on Twitter, you might as well. He's got a pretty big fan base uh, growing. He's got, I think, 23,500 followers now. So he's getting close to 25,000 uh, people following him on, on Twitter. But the reason the weakness in the dollar should be a warning sign is that as long as the dollar remained stable, or as long as the dollar was strengthening, the Fed could seemingly create as many as they wanted, right? As long as there was demand for dollars, then they can increase the supply of dollars without a problem. And that's how the Fed is able to artificially uh, manipulate interest rates. They can keep bond prices down by buying bonds. If they're a big buyer in the bond market, right, and and they're propping up bond prices, they're keeping interest rates low by bidding up bond prices. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. But the only way they can buy bonds is if they print money. But that money that they're printing, there has to be a buyer for that money. I mean, maybe there's not a buyer for the bonds, but there has to be a buyer for the dollars. And for a while, there were buyers for those dollars. And because there were buyers for the dollars, the Fed could sell those dollars and then buy bonds. And that was keeping everything afloat. But I've always been saying that the Fed was sacrificing the dollar to prop up the bond market, to prop up the stock market, to prop up the economy, to uh, facilitate large deficit spending on the part of the federal government. But now the canary in the coal mine here is the weakening dollar. Because now the market is saturated with dollars, the market doesn't want any more dollars. But the only way the Fed can keep a lid on interest rates is to keep printing dollars. The Fed has to keep adding to a supply of something where there's already inadequate demand. The fact that the dollar is falling right now shows you that there is isn't adequate demand for the number of dollars that already exist. Plus, we are running massive trade deficits on a monthly basis we are putting out an extra 80 billion or so dollars into the global economy that the global economy doesn't want. I mean, they don't need them to buy our exports by definition because that's the deficit. They've already bought all the products they need and they've got this 80 billion dollars left over. So they sell them. And so that's putting downward pressure on the dollar. In the meantime. The deficits, the budget deficits are getting bigger and bigger, and now the Federal Reserve wants to monetize those to prevent interest rates from rising, so they have to expand the money supply even faster and add to the glut of dollars on the market. So in this dynamic, the only thing that can happen is that the dollar goes down. You got all this supply and you don't have demand. And then of course, it begins to feed on itself because as the dollar really starts to fall, more and more people want to borrow in dollars, but fewer and fewer people want to lend in dollars because obviously if you're lending in dollars, you're getting screwed because by the time you get your dollars back, they will have lost a lot of value, but a lot of people want to borrow in dollars because it's free money. And so this dynamic feeds on itself and just accelerates the dollar's demise and the strength of the dollar is key. You have to understand that the only reason this economy works is because of the overvalued dollar. The only reason the Fed has been able to get away with all the stimulus and the bailouts is because the world has made it possible By buying up all those dollars. But now that the world doesn't want those dollars and is in fact starting to hemorrhage those dollars, this whole process is going to unravel. It's just that the the mainstream of the financial media just doesn't understand this dynamic. They still don't get it, so they still don't realize how problematic a weak dollar is going to be. Now, the weak dollar would have caused a crisis all on its own back in 2008. If the dollar had continued to fall, there would have been a currency crisis. But instead, we had a financial crisis. And that financial crisis, ironically, was a reprieve for the dollar because everybody ran into the dollar and bought it. And a lot of people thought that that was going to happen again when COVID started. We initially got a rally in the dollar in the early days of COVID. And For a lot of people, that was reminiscent of what happened in 2008. I mean, that's where you had, you know, the dollar milkshake guys talking about how everyone's going to buy dollars. And I pointed out how pathetic that dollar rally actually was. Sure, it rallied, but it was a shadow of the type of rally that it had in crises in the past, especially given the severity of the decline in global equities. The dollar barely caught a bid. And now here we are, dollar index breaking below 90. I think the dollar's days as the safe haven, go-to asset are gone. The question is how many days left where it still serves as a reserve currency? That is a you know the $64 trillion question that we don't know for sure what the answer is. But I think we're witnessing the beginning of the end of the dollar hegemony that has made all of this possible. But so many people in the financial industry still don't get it. I mean, they never got it in the past. That's why they didn't understand uh, the, the criticisms and the warnings that I was uh, you know, issuing prior to the 2008 financial crisis. And that's why they still don't understand that everything the Federal Reserve did subsequent to the 2008 financial crisis just exacerbated the problems that caused it and set us up for a much greater crisis, which is the one we're heading to now. 2020 has been a very challenging year for employers and 2021 is probably going to be even more challenging. That's because a lot of new regulations are likely in the pipeline. Uh, The Democratic administration is likely to reverse the trend of the Trump administration. There's going to be more regulation, particularly employment law. It's going to be increasingly more important that you get the very best hire every time you add a new employee. Because each employee is going to come with significantly more risks for the employer. In addition to the risks of COVID and having to make sure that not only are your customers safe, but your employees safe. And so it's more important than ever that before you hire somebody, you make sure that you have got the right person for that job. And Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site according to Comscore.com. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the people that you need to keep your business going. And unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long term contracts. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in its database to help show you great candidates instantly so you can spend your time wisely. In fact, according to Indeed's data, more than 80% of employers get a list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they post a sponsored job. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visit Indeed each month, according to CompScore. That's total visits. So it's clear that Indeed can help you get the quality hires you need. That's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide are already using Indeed for their hiring. Right now, Indeed is offering my listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. This is the best offer available anywhere. So go right now to indeed.com/peter. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. You know, in fact, ironically, I was watching on CNBC as Joe Kernan was interviewing Henry Blodgett. and Henry Blodgett was one of the most famous, if not the most famous, Internet.com analyst during the dot-com bubble. I think he was uh, the Merrill Lynch analyst and and he had some you know crazy price targets on all these internet companies so he was really the poster analyst for that bubble and you know since the collapse of that bubble he's gotten a lot better i mean i think he's learned a bit from his mistakes and he was on and the topic strayed to bitcoin which is something that happens quite often on cnbc pretty much every guest is asked to opine on on Bitcoin. And and generally, the comments are positive. Uh, but finally, we saw somebody talk about Bitcoin being a bubble. And in fact, Blodgett said, in his opinion, it was the mother of all bubbles, the perfect bubble, because you have an asset that has absolutely no intrinsic value whatsoever. So people can ascribe any value to it they want that is in limited supply. And they have this, you know, this, this, um, narrative that everybody is signing on to that everybody seems to believe in and it is you know the ultimate uh, pyramid scheme greater fool dynamic going on and then immediately Joe Kernan interrupts him to argue with him and take the bullish side of Bitcoin and why you know Bitcoin is digital gold and it's the new gold and therefore people need to buy and what's I thought particularly ironic about that is that my first appearance on CNBC was on Squawk Box with Joe Kernan. He wasn't the host, right? But he was one of the regulars. It was Joe Kernan was there with Mark Faber and the host of the show was Mark Haynes who passed away uh, several years ago. But that was the first time I was on and Steve Leisman was on there. And I came on for the first time and was talking about the financial crisis and the Federal Reserve and artificially low interest rates. And one of the things I said was that people should buy gold as a hedge. Of course, I was also recommending foreign stocks and we talked a lot about that. But I talked about gold. And of course, the price of gold was under $400 the first time I came on CNBC and and said that people should buy it uh, as a hedge against excess money printing and inflation and the Fed. And these guys just attacked me. I mean, they 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 were ridiculing me for even recommending something as crazy as buying gold, right? Nobody should buy gold. Who cares about the price of gold? You know, people shouldn't be buying gold, and and and, and so they all attacked me for recommending actual gold. But now, <laughs> Joe Curtin, who was one of the guys who was attacking me for recommending real gold, is now attacking other people for not recommending digital gold or my opinion, fool's gold. So he didn't see the case for buying gold, but he sees the case for buying Bitcoin. And again, I've made this point that the main reason that I'm not on CNBC is because they disagreed with my bearish outlook on the US economy. They didn't like my criticism of the Federal Reserve. They didn't like my criticism of the fiat-based monetary system and the deficits and the quantitative easing. And so because I was saying all these unpopular things, they just didn't even want it on their air. But now, every day they have guest after guest talking about hyperinflation, a collapsing dollar. It's all good as long as you then recommend that people buy Bitcoin. And as long as you're going to tout Bitcoin, you can be as bearish as you want and and still be on. And, you know, what I actually think is the trade, right, that I guess they're recommending or that they they think is going to happen with Bitcoin is the guys on CNBC, the regulars, the hosts, they think that there's no reason to buy gold, that buying gold is stupid. But there are some stupid people like me who buy gold. And what they're betting is, is that the people who are dumb enough to buy gold in the future will be even dumber and buy Bitcoin instead. That's what they're saying. It's like for all those idiots who don't believe in central banking and don't realize that the people at the Federal Reserve are geniuses, all these crackpots who are buying gold in the future, they're not going to buy gold. They're going to buy Bitcoin instead. And so what they want to do is they want to load up on Bitcoin now. So they can sell it to people like me when i finally figure out that i should be buying bitcoin instead of actual gold right so they're they're betting that the gold bugs who they think are dumb will be even dumber and eventually ditch their gold and buy a bitcoin instead i mean i actually look at it from a different perspective i think it's really a bet at this point on will the institutional investors be dumb enough and greedy enough to jump on this bandwagon? I mean, as I am talking right now, the price of bitcoin is over 23,000 in fact it's getting very close to 24,000 about 23,700 this is about as high as I've seen it I'm not sure maybe we peaked our head above 24,000 I'm, I'm really not sure and in fact when Henry Blodgett was on he did mention even though he was bearish he said he sees no reason why bitcoin can't go to a million dollars of bitcoin now I find it very hard to believe that it would get up that high but in theory sure Because he said a million dollars of Bitcoin makes as much sense as 23000 which is true. Because any value above zero makes no sense at all because there's no actual value there. But if people are willing to pay that much for it, then they're willing to pay that much for it. But just because they're willing to pay that much for it today doesn't mean they're willing to pay that much for it tomorrow. But there is a lot of pressure now. On on some of these institutions that think, hey, all I have to do is buy this and it's gonna go way up. In fact, some of the institutions realize that simply by mentioning that they're gonna buy it, that in and of itself is gonna help push the price up. You know, I mean, obviously, I mean, I probably would have some impact if I were to come out and say, you know what, I was wrong and I'm now gonna just buy. Bitcoin and I'm going to recommend that all my clients buy Bitcoin and I'm going to sell all my gold and gold stocks and buy Bitcoin. If I were to say that, then it could easily have a positive impact on the price of Bitcoin. You know, I I read this article on Friday that was the the top 10 crypto uh, villains. And I was a little disappointed that I was only number four. I kind of wanted to top the list. So I have to work a little harder next year to be number one. But if one of the top Bitcoin critics all of a sudden came out and said, hey, I I, I I was wrong. I'm now buying it. It would probably have an impact on the price. So clearly, if I were going to do something like that, I would buy a bunch of Bitcoin first, and then I could come out and make that announcement of my intention to buy Bitcoin. And then when the price went up, I could sell and I could take a profit. I would never do anything like that. But I would not put it past some of these other institutions who realize that their own mentioning of their intention to buy in and of itself could push up the price and help their performance. And again, some of these hedge funds, of course, they mark to market so they can charge their clients 20 percent of the profits, even if they don't actually realize them, which is a big advantage in an illiquid asset where it's actually hard to realize the profits. But if you can help goose some paper profits, then you can you know, get some real uh, incentive fees from your clients, but I think there is going to be some natural limit uh, to the number of institutions. I mean, the Bitcoin community is going to greatly exaggerate every time one person uh, from a hedge fund or an institution uh, does something in Bitcoin, they're going to focus on it as if the entire industry uh, is is making this, this migration into Bitcoin. They're not and they never will. In fact, I know from personal experience, trying to get uh, institutional money into gold was almost impossible for them to even make the jump to gold. You know, they had they had no interest or even gold stocks. So to think that they're just going to go right to Bitcoin, I mean, if they have no interest in gold, then why do they care about digital gold? That's one of the things I think is so incredible is so many people on, uh, let's say, on financial television who have never bought any gold at all and who never had any interest in gold. Because they thought it was a dumb investment. So if there's now a digital version of a dumb investment, well, why is that a smart investment? I mean, if gold was stupid, why is a digital replica supposedly so much better? I mean, especially since it doesn't even do any of the things that you can actually do with real gold. So it would make sense to me if you had a lot of people who used to like gold and were gold bugs who now say, you know what, I like Bitcoin better than gold. But people who never liked gold thought it was stupid and looked down on people who bought it all of a sudden thinking Bitcoin is great makes absolutely no sense whatsoever unless you look at it from a more sinister perspective, which is what I've been doing regarding these pumping and dumping and and, and this insensuous relationship going on between CNBC and and, and Grayscale. In fact, I thought it was very funny. And this was the day before Blodgett came on. So Blodger was on on Friday. This was on Thursday. And Andrew Ross Sarkin was on, and he had a guest who was a representative from Grayscale, right? One of the guys that works there, right? This is their biggest advertiser. The biggest advertiser on CNBC is Grayscale. And of course, they bring him on and they say, Oh, well, so w- what's your forecast on Bitcoin? What do you think is gonna happen? And of course, you know, well, it's gonna go way up, right? What else is he gonna say? But then I, I, I thought this was hysterical. Then Andrew Ross Sorkin said, you know, I wish somebody would give me the bearish case against Bitcoin. Like, I wish somebody would do that. I'm like, yeah, we'll invite a bear on there. I mean, the first one I saw was Henry Blodgett, and he was not really there to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, It's just that Joe Kernan kind of steered the conversation eventually to Bitcoin because he's such a big Bitcoin bull himself, you know, gold bear turned Bitcoin bull, but Andrew Orsarkin was like, I wish somebody would just tell me the bearish case for Bitcoin. Well, the reason no one is telling him the bearish case for Bitcoin is because no Bitcoin bears are ever invited on CNBC to articulate the bearish case. All they have is one bull after another shilling for Bitcoin. One person working in the Bitcoin industry, whereas when I used to come on, you know, talking about gold. All they would do is attack my credibility, say I'm biased. You know, no one should pay attention to me because what? Because I had shift gold. And if I said, put 10% of your money in gold, it was all because I I had a gold business that I was trying to promote. Yet people are completely dependent who are on these crypto businesses. Gold was a side business for me and still is. My main business is asset management. It's not gold. But you got people coming on whose entire livelihood is based on Bitcoin, yet they're never accused of being biased. But the reality is, though, for all the talk, you know, and all the promotion of Bitcoin is all about institutions are buying Bitcoin because they're worried about inflation. They're worried about a weak dollar. They're worried about quantitative easing. No, they're not. They're not worried about any of these things. If they were, they would be buying actual gold. They would be dumping US dollars. They would be dumping dollar-denominated bonds. None of this is actually true yet. It eventually will be true. Eventually, these institutions are going to start to worry about inflation and a weak dollar, just that they're not there yet. So all of this is just make-believe. This is just part of the false narrative to promote Bitcoin. The reason that gold is not much higher is not because people are selling their gold to buy Bitcoin. They're not doing that. The reason that gold is not much higher is because people still don't get it. They're still not afraid. They're still optimistic. It's risk on. They want to go into the stock market. They don't want to be defensive. They don't want to buy gold. And in fact, there's nothing defensive about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the ultimate risk asset. People are just betting on appreciation. That's not what you're doing. When you're buying gold, you are hedging. You are getting out of assets. You're getting into real money, but you're in gold instead of dollars or euros or yen because you recognize that Paper money is losing value, so you want to you want to have dry powder, but you don't want your powder to get all wet uh, because the central banks print too much of it. So we're not even there. But the Bitcoin proponents are trying to create this false narrative that the reason gold's not going up is because everybody is buying Bitcoin instead. They're not. People are buying Bitcoin to gamble on the appreciation in the price of Bitcoin. The narrative that's driving it is that it's an inflation hedge, and it's replacing gold. But there's no evidence that that's actually happening. And that's never going to happen. And eventually, when the price of gold really starts to go up, because people are worried about inflation and are worried about all the things that they're pretending is the driving force behind Bitcoin, that could be the point where Bitcoin really starts to fall. Because then you can see the people who own Bitcoin wanting to get defensive. Wanted to take some of these paper profits off the table and put their winnings into real money. Right? That is gonna happen. As much as so many people want to pretend that Bitcoin is the real money, it's not. That's the pipe dream. That's part of the hype. Now, while I'm on the topic of of printing money, I want to speak about an interview too that I saw on CNBC. It was one of the governors of one of the states. I don't remember Uh, which state it was, or actually, I don't even remember if it was a governor, but it was somebody in state government. I thought it was a governor, but the guy was arguing in favor of more stimulus. And the reason that this guy was saying the federal government needs to provide this stimulus is because the states can't. And what he said was that the states can't print money And the states can't borrow as much money as the federal government. And therefore, since the states can't print and borrow money, the federal government needs to do it for them, right? The federal government needs to step up and use these tools that are not available uh, to the state governments. And and first of all, if we're going to follow the Constitution, the federal government can't print money either. I mean, nobody, according to the U.S. Constitution, can print money, right? The states are specifically denied that power. Right. The Constitution says that no state shall emit bills of credit, which was how they described paper money. So the states are prohibited from issuing bills of credit, but nowhere in the Constitution is the federal government authorized to admit bills of credit, issue bills of credit. And as I've discussed on this podcast before, the way the U.S. Constitution works, and the 10th Amendment explains that, if you don't know, Uh, But you could also read the Federalist Papers. But the way it works is the states can do anything that's not denied in the Constitution. So the states have a lot of power. But if the Constitution says they can't do something, then that's what they can't do. But where the Constitution is silent, the states can do what they want, right? Now, the states are going to be limited by their own constitutions. But as far as the U.S. Constitution, all it does is, is say what the states can't do. And if, the, if it doesn't say they can't do it, then they can do it. The federal government, it's the opposite. The federal government can only do what the Constitution authorizes. So the federal government has these enumerated powers. And if the power is not enumerated, it doesn't exist. And there is nothing in the Constitution that says the federal government can emit bills of credit. And that is not an oversight. Because in the first draft of the U.S. Constitution, that power was there. They gave the federal government the power to create paper money. And then they removed it. It was a vote of nine to two. So there were two states that wanted to keep it. But nine states said, no, we don't want the federal government printing money. And so the federal government was not given that power in the final draft of the Constitution. So it's quite obvious that they can't do it. So nobody is legally allowed to print money. But the way the federal government got around the Constitution was they created the Federal Reserve in 1913. And the Federal Reserve, as a private banking uh, syndicate, they're allowed to print money. right? They're not the federal government. And so the money printing is done by the Federal Reserve. But initially, the Federal Reserve was independent, and I've also talked on this podcast that when the original Federal Reserve Act was passed, the Federal Reserve was prohibited from owning any U.S. treasuries. And the reason was obvious is they didn't want the US government to be able to use the Federal Reserve to do an end run around the constitution because the federal government had no power to print money. But if they could sell bonds to the Federal Reserve, which could print money to buy those bonds, they could effectively get around that constitutional limitation and utilize the Federal Reserve to print money. So the way they safeguarded that is they said the Federal Reserve cannot buy any U.S. Treasuries. Now, of course, you know, the ink was barely dry on the Federal Reserve Act before they amended it. And why did they amend it? Because World War II started in 1917 and the government wanted money to pay for the war, but they didn't want to raise taxes So they wanted to borrow the money, and they amended the Federal Reserve Act to make that possible. And that was the beginning of the end, because that's when Congress was given the ability to sell bonds to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was now authorized to hold on its balance sheet U.S. Treasuries. Now, of course, there were congressmen who were concerned about making it legal for the Federal Reserve To buy treasuries, recognizing that this could lead to much larger deficits, that is where the debt ceiling came in. A lot of people don't realize, you know, hey, you know, why do we have a debt ceiling? The debt ceiling came around in 1917 as part of this change to the Federal Reserve Act, because what happened was congressmen said, well, you know, if we're going to allow the Federal Reserve to buy treasuries, then the government is going to be able to go deeper into debt. So let's put a limit. Let's create a debt ceiling so that the government doesn't abuse its ability to sell its bonds to the Federal Reserve. Right. So let's have a debt ceiling. So we're going to use this debt ceiling to limit how much bonds the government can sell. Well, that was obviously a mistake because Congress raised the ceiling every time we got to it, and now we've completely suspended it so that it's a ceiling that doesn't even exist anymore. But the mistake was amending the Federal Reserve Act. And in fact, had the original Federal Reserve Act empowered the Federal Reserve to buy U.S. treasuries, I don't think it ever would have passed. So that is always the problem with government regulation. It is the camel's nose under the tent. Never give government an inch because they will take a mile. You give them any small new power and it is going to be abused. That is why what's happening right now with COVID-19 is, is, is so dangerous because we're giving government some additional powers. And of course, these powers are supposedly it's an emergency. We're having a war on COVID. Look, it's always an emergency. It's always a war. The government always uses that type of environment. to to usurp some power. That's why it's, hey, never let a crisis go to waste, even if you have to manufacture the crisis yourself, because that's where the public's guard is down. That's where they're willing to sacrifice some of their freedoms and some of their liberties for some temporary security. And that has always been the secret to the government's ability to get the American public to give up its rights and to increase the power of the federal government. And that's certainly what happened with the Federal Reserve. But going back to the point that I was just making about this guy on CNBC, I think the state governor saying, hey, the states can't print money, so the federal government needs to do it. Ironically, it's not the federal government that's printing the money. It's still the Federal Reserve that's printing it. And at this point, there's nothing that stops the Federal Reserve from buying municipal bonds. So in effect. If the Federal Reserve were to make it known that its QE program, and I believe this is going to happen, is going to extend to state bonds, right, then there is no limit to how much debt the states could run up. I mean, right now there is a limit because interest rates will rise. If states start borrowing too much money, the lenders will start to correctly worry about the ability of the state to repay its loans. But if the Federal Reserve decides to start buying up all the state bonds, well, then the, they don't give a damn uh, because they don't care if the state's default. They'll just keep buying more bonds. So if we end up with a QE program for the states, well, then doesn't matter. Then the states can do exactly what the federal government is doing, because the only reason the federal government can borrow all this money is because the Federal Reserve has made its intentions known that it is going to monetize it. Well, it could just as easily at this point let everybody know that it is going to monetize the debt of the states. Of course, that potentially can do even more damage because the moral hazard there is enormous. Because once states know that their debts will be monetized by the Federal Reserve, now you've got A problem that's even bigger than the one we have in Europe right now with the ECB monetizing all the debts of these various nations. Because if a state realizes that it can pass the bill onto the other states, right, by having the debt socialized, now you have a big incentive for states to run even bigger deficits, knowing that the Federal Reserve is going to buy up the bonds. But now you're sending a message to those fiscally responsible states, you guys are idiots. Why don't you go into debt too? Because what's the point of being responsible yourself if you're only going to have to pick up the tab for all the other states that are reckless? So basically, it's a race to the bottom. And now every state wants to run bigger and bigger deficits to get its fair share of the, 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 the QE program. And so it's a huge moral hazard, which results in an explosion of debt, which is one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve might be reluctant to actually go there and to basically let these state legislatures know that they are going to start buying up their bonds. But they might start doing it anyway just to prevent interest rates from rising, because as the Federal Reserve creates all this inflation, and predominantly it's being done by monetizing federal debt, as they're doing that and they're running up inflation and destroying the value of the dollar, there's a lot of dollar-denominated debt that they are not buying. What happens to the value of those bonds? They crash. And so even if the Federal Reserve can hold interest rates artificially low for the U.S. government, what about everybody else who wants to borrow in dollars, which would include the states and municipalities, their interest costs are going to start to skyrocket. And the only way the Federal Reserve could keep those interest costs from skyrocketing is to include the municipal bonds and the state bonds in its QE programs. And in fact, They're going to have to do the same thing for corporate America. If they want to keep a lid on corporate interest rates, if they want to prevent the rates on corporate debt from skyrocketing, if they want to prevent mortgage rates from skyrocketing, which they're obviously going to want to do, that's the only thing that is fueling this new housing bubble is the lowest mortgage rates in US history. But the only way the Fed could keep all these rates from rising is to monetize all that debt. And so the Federal Reserve goes from the buyer of last resort to the buyer of only resort. And that is it. That is The dollar is toast. In fact, even before it gets to that point, the dollar has to crash. And then the Federal Reserve has got to make the choice that it has been reluctant to make all these years. And that is to let interest rates go up, to stop monetizing this debt, and allow the mother of all financial crisis to develop with no bailouts for anybody but up until this point there's almost no indication that that's going to happen especially when we have Janet Yellen as secretary of treasury working hand in glove uh, with Powell and her buddies over at the Federal Reserve Uh, they are going to manufacture a world-class historic U.S. dollar and sovereign debt crisis and you had better be prepared and don't get sidetracked by what's happening uh, in Bitcoin because that's just noise. Uh, that bubble's gonna pop. Uh, and the only thing uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are gonna succeed in doing is making paper fiat currencies look good in comparison to digital fiat currencies. But in the meantime, buy up as many real assets as you can. Uh, look at what's happening to the dollar, look at what's happening to a lot of these foreign value stocks, look at what's happening to commodities, look at what's happening to emerging markets. These trends are just beginning. They're going to accelerate. They're going to add a lot of momentum, I think particularly in 2021 and 2022. So before the rest of Wall Street wakes up, to the reality that I have been warning about for years just make sure you top off your positions if you're still holding on to any U.S. stocks it makes no point to own them when you can own foreign stocks where you have the the tailwind of a falling dollar instead of all of the headwinds uh, that are going to be There for the domestic economy when it comes to higher taxes and more inflation and more regulation. And you want to be getting in on these commodities. You want to be getting in on gold and silver. Silver, again, very big week this week. Silver stocks, particularly strong on the week, but they're still cheap. There's still a long way for these stocks to go. So, you know, if you don't have an account, you know, we do have separately managed accounts now at Europe Pacific Capital that concentrate predominantly or exclusively in the mining sector. That's where I think the most profits are going to be made. Of course, that's where there is the greatest risk. Uh, but if you do have the stomach for that type of risk and if you don't have the the money for a separately managed account, you can put money into my gold fund, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund. You can buy it with your Europe Pacific Capital Rep or you can buy it at any of the uh, discount brokerage houses that have my mutual funds on their platform. And for... Your more conservative money, recognize the real threat is to the U.S. dollar. There are no conservative dollar-denominated investments. So if you want to protect your purchasing power, you've got to get out of U.S. dollars and U.S. dollar-denominated investments into sounder, real investments outside the United States.